Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode will tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Matt Cullen, who is the VP of Sales at Castagra Product. Matt has over 20 years of experience in sales. I've worked with Matt, and he's very good at finding hidden opportunities and finding his way into large organizations. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Tatsuya. (laughs) So we've known each other a long time, but our listeners don't know much about you. What can you tell us about your background? Yeah, well, I'm I'm just more recently an entrepreneur, but from the beginning of my career, just sales, marketing, business development, typically B2B type of salesperson, and just go-getter, really, in many different industries, everything from oil and gas to telecom to software to now construction products and services. Absolutely. So it sounds like you're always in sales. Did it... Does the sale process come naturally to you or was it a learning curve? I've been selling since I was just a young kid, whether it was me selling skateboard parts or going out and finding a yard demo. I've always tried to start small and build through sales and business development. Again, since whether it was a a small service when I was a kid or or here we are selling coding solutions. So you mentioned skating parts. Tell me about that. What was that about? <laughs> That's kind of funny. So when I, I was an old skateboarder, an old skate rack growing up in the 80s. And back then, my parents would never buy me stuff. And a $150 skateboard was a, a big hurdle. So I'd always buy wheels or trucks or boards or whatnot, uh, use them, sell them, fix them up and sell them. So like I said, I've always been selling and, and working it to get things that I like and need and or want, I guess. So you were selling these like reselling skate parts to finance your skateboard? Exactly. Just to the kid across the street or the buddy from school that was also into the sport. Nice. That's awesome. So in terms of sales process, I guess the first step in sales, I guess, is prospecting, I guess. Would you say that's sort of the the step one in terms of sales? Absolutely. I mean, certainly knowing your your product well could be step one, but Step two could be who's going to be my customer and client. Absolutely. Okay. So let's let's go back then. So step one is knowing your product. How do you approach that? I mean, you've worked with lots of different companies. How do you know the product well enough to sell it? It really just comes from the leadership of the company and organization that you're going to be working for. For me personally, I try to get involved. I look for solutions or products where I can have a specific advantage over the status quo. You know, here at Castagger, we like to say we're better, faster, and more economical. That was one of the biggest things that I bit off on when I first came to Castagger was it was hitting on all of those points, better, faster, more economic. And certainly here at Castagger, we get to add the green component as well. So understanding those types of things is really your value proposition and how you manipulate those into getting your end client. Cool. So it's good. So you you go to the companies that have products that have a very big advantage. So definitely a good approach 
from there, you've learned about the product and you have to find these potential customers that can take this advantage and run with it. How do you approach the prospecting process? That's a great question. And it's really a balance. I mean, you don't, you want to start making phone calls and making connections. So you don't want to spend crazy amounts of time dissecting who your prospect's going to be, but you want to have a good, really understanding. And I personally, I take a different approach to prospecting depending on who my end customer or client might be. I mean, is it a direct-to-client type of relationship that I'm going to be going after? Is Here at Castagra, we look for a lot of partners or strategic partners like a reseller or a supplier that might, might be someone that we might be targeting. And also existing clients. How do I take an existing client and sell them more or tap into referrals? So I kind of don't look at prospecting as, as a linear type of fashion, but differently between whom I'm specifically going after. But but generically, you know, you really want to know your client as well as possible. And today's age with the internet, all the social media, whether it be LinkedIn or Facebook or any one of these various chat rooms and blogs specifically into the industry, I jokingly say it's taking the hunt out of hunting up prospects. <laughs> it's really it's really make it made it easy to really know your your client or your prospect pretty quickly. Nice. Not everyone's on these tools. So I guess what you're saying is that if you're not, then you need to get on these tools and learn these tools so you can basically just sort of be exposed to this world. Absolutely. I mean, it, like I said, it takes the hunt out of the hunting. So it, it speeds things up tremendously. Awesome. And my, my approach has changed is much different now than it was even just five years ago in using those types of tools. Wow. What was your approach like five years ago? Before, I mean, obviously I have a much broader type of scope in regards to who I'm looking to get involved with Castagra because we there's so many different types of people, whether it's a partner, whether it's an end customer and that sort of thing. But certainly when I was younger and I, let's just say one of my first careers was selling telecom, back then I didn't have the focus and approach that I have now. Everyone was a customer. Mm-hmm. So in that case, I would try to get really, really good on a specific vertical and then attack that vertical. Very cool. So, okay. So you've learned a lot over the years and you have what amounts to a much more refined process. So taking what you know now, what would you tell your younger self about sales? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me specifically, I would say number one, first and foremost, is stay organized. It's the cliche saying it's who you know. It's Who's going to help you out and get you into these things? And today, like we've already discussed about the social media, and it's very, very easy to meet and connect with people, but organizing it becomes paramount. And so using CRM tools like Salesforce or Zoho or any one of those types of CRM tools is paramount in regards. As a salesperson, as a business development person, at the end of the day, we're just developing a book of business. And being able to tap into that book of business effectively and efficiently is, is paramount. So number one, using these types of CRM tools to keep track of everything. The second thing I would tell my younger self, it would be stay focused. I was plagued with just wanting to talk with everybody. And I think it's really, really important. And, and we've seen this here at Castagra as we've grown. It's really, really important to be 
great at one thing, not okay at a whole lot. So staying focused is just paramount. Third, I would say really engage the community around you. Again, whether it's through social media, but volunteer in an organization and be active in the different trade associations. It just sharpens your skill and it it gives you an opportunity to meet industry insiders through just an active community. Very similar to what you're doing with your activity, Tats. Yeah. So if I were to sum it up, so instead of just networking to build relationship, you're either getting involved in the community or even broadly focused, you're building a community. Is that, is that sum that up? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay, good, good. And your next point was? Yeah. Number four, try to mentor. I think it's a, it's a great way to give back. And by helping younger people coming up through the industry, I learn by teaching too. And I, so I think it's important to mentor folks when we can and, and give back. And I get a lot out of it too. And then finally have fun. (laughs) <laughs> we want to have, we want to enjoy our, our day. The business that we're building and, and the careers that we go after take a major percentage of our, of our time and our lives. And I think it's important to have fun. And so be sure to stop and smell the roses along the way, but be creative in how you can have fun with your business. Nice. Nice. Now, where those are fantastic tips. Where do you think most salespeople get stuck? Not to, to reiterate what I already say, but staying focused. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's very, very easy for... There's a lot of flashy objects in the water for us to bite onto. And we really need to focus on, on what we're after. And again, just to reiterate, being good at one really... Being really, really, really good at one thing is so much more effective than being okay at a lot of stuff. That's awesome. Now, you've been at this sales game for a while. Can you sort of pinpoint at one point in your career or life where you sort of felt transformed, where you sort of kind of got it, like got to the next level or something? Is there some point that you could sort of sort of trace back for us? Yeah, I mean, it really has been with Castagra, where I've sold telecom for large companies. I sold software for AOL. I've sold pipeline into companies. And a lot of the companies that I've worked with in the past, some of them have been ground floor opportunities, some more than others. But when with launching Castagra and really, you know, I, I jokingly say, you know, this is a basement opportunity. I mean, we started this thing in the basement. It wasn't even ground floor. But really being able to tap into the entrepreneurial side, starting with a, the company in its infancy, it's really been able to bring together all of the different things that I've done in my career together and really launched something from infancy has been remarkable. And I, I really, really enjoy it. Nice. That's good. It's, it's always fun doing the entrepreneurial thing, but they uh, come with challenges. Now, what sort of <laughs> habits, <laughs> habits <No doubt. laughs> or routines kind of help you sort of stay focused? In anything in our lives, in careers and sort of thing, when we're doing the same thing over and over and over, things become mundane and boring and stuff like that. So you always just want to be excited about going to work. Self-affirmation is a funny way to put it, but really just staying positive and being motivated and being excited 
at the end of the day, it gets you up in the morning, it starts your day, but most importantly, it's infectious with the folks that you're talking to, whether it's someone that you work with or your client, whomever. But just staying positive is infectious and, and it really helps out. So three habits. Second one, again, I'd have to just say just staying up on the trends, going to the trade shows and learning. Our industries, all industries are always changing. and just staying up on what's new is really, really important in my opinion. Good. And then uh, one thing that I've been, I've been really doing recently, and this isn't something that I came up with, but kind of coming back to basics in regards to just driving success. I really, really strive for a big Friday. As much as that seems weird, I think it's a lot of salespeople will say, oh, it's Friday afternoon. No one's going to want to take my call. Oh, it's a banking holiday. No one's going to want to take my call. Oh, it's Memorial Day weekend or whatever. Always strive to just make that extra few phone calls. And, and how I've kind of honed this in personally most recently is I try to have a big, big, big Friday and close Friday really, really, really strong. I found that it really makes me feel great about my work week. And most importantly, it helps us swing into Monday morning really be effective as well. So just really utilizing that time and don't get into the trap of saying, oh, no one wants to take my call because it's Friday afternoon. Sometimes mm -hmm. I have some of my best time for the week is that Friday afternoon when other sales folks might not be, be out there hunting. Nice. I like that. I heard that one definitely. And I think, I, but it's not talked about that much. So it's definitely an important one. So. I can certainly appreciate that. Now, this is something very interesting that that you recently did is you had a sort of item on your bucket list that you really wanted to get done. And that included a special rafting trip. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, absolutely. So I could spend hours on this question, <laughs> but we'll, we'll try to be quick about it. But yeah, a passion of mine is, is river rafting. I've been a, a whitewater river guide for 17 years now, running multiple rivers throughout the Western United States, everything from day trips to 21, 21 day trips. And one of the things that I really love to do is just check out no phones, no computer, no internet, and really just getting on the river and getting back to nature. The Grand Canyon is the pinnacle of river trips. The Grand Canyon is the biggest canyon in the world. It's 280 miles from Lee's Ferry down to Diamond Creek. And it's very, very competitive to put on and get a private self-guided trip. To give you an idea, I've been putting in for this permit for 15 years. <laughs> some people hit it the first time and some people have to wait for it like myself. So if I was only able to pull this permit once every 15 years, it really could be identified as a trip of a lifetime. Thankfully, I pulled this permit last year. They gave up me about 300 days to, to commit and, and do the trip. And I, I thankfully, Peter Rosen, our CEO, I, I learned it's a big ask to ask your employer for a 21-day hiatus. <laughs> but when you give someone a year's notice, at least Peter, they'll say yes to a lot of things. So I gave him a year's notice and on March 26th, me and... 10 other people and five wraps, just other boater buddies and friends were able to shove off and spend 21 days on the river, which was just amazing. And I'll try to kind of 
talk a little bit about this, but land in some business at the same time and, and some parallels. So, you know, when you're river rafting, there's lots of stuff to do. Gearing your boat up, making sure everything's secure, making sure your team and everyone's secure and safe. There's just constant things to be thinking and thinking about. And because of that, you really can't think about other things, whether it be work or what's going to happen later today or what's for dinner or whatever. So you're very, very, very much in the moment. And I love that about rafting. And you can, you on can, a bit, you can say that about business today too. If you're in a business, I mean, if you're truly engaged, right, when what you're doing, there's always outside distractions, but you're basically in it together. Now, I mean, rafting, there's a certain element of danger to it. So you're, you're watching each other's lives at, at some level, right? So there's a lot of sort of team dynamic there, right? But I think in business, it's, I think it's kind of the same thing, right? There's a lot of things going on that can be dropped. And I think it's definitely more apparent in the rafting world, but I think that's what you're getting at, right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and things getting dropped. So you're watching your team members back and they're watching your back and you're able to really have a tight team in a short amount of time because people are heavily relying on one another for safety and comfort when you're out. I mean, we, I was outdoors for 21 days straight. And most people in today's age can't say that they've been outdoors for five days, let alone 21 days. Mm -hmm. And so really depending on one another comes into play. Another thing, especially on a, on a big river trip like this on the Grand Canyon, is there's very, very, very big whitewater. And it was funny, like Crystal Rapid. Okay, Crystal Rapid's one of the big, big rapids, and Lava Falls is one of the big, even bigger rapids below it. Well, start thinking about Lava Falls until you're through Crystal. Mm -hmm. It's just how it works, and it's very much in, in business. I mean, I'm not thinking you do want to think about down the road and plan and stuff, but being in the moment and taking care of what needs to be happen today is going to set you up for success three, four, or five days. And so it's kind of, I mean, obviously nature dictates the rapids on the Grand Canyon. It wasn't, it's not a man-made thing, but the rapids seem to be to get progressively harder and scarier the farther down the river you get. I mean, we're adding, water's constantly being added to the canyon from tributaries and different things like that. And I was a better rafter and, and learned more about Grand Canyon boating day 10 than I did day five. And so it really set myself up to be successful downriver. I'm glad, I'm glad it happened that way because I was a better boater towards the end than I was at the beginning. Wow. When you say better boater, can you sort of quantify that for me? What, what did you learn? We have everything's bigger on the Grand Canyon. So we had bigger boats, bigger oars. We had typically when I'm rafting, a decent trip for me is like a five-day trip. And this is a 21-day trip. So my boat was rigged heavier than I've ever had to experience. And so I had to relearn a lot of things. My stroke was different with a loaded boat than a light boat. And so just getting familiar with the bigger water of the Grand Canyon, the bigger equipment and the weight of the gear, really, I had to relearn everything a little bit. And how did communication work? I mean, were there sort of people, certain people designated for certain roles? Like how does, how does that work? I mean, when you're, when you're working as a team? No, that's a great question. So typically we have a lead boater. In this case, we are fortunate to have a, a guy along 
on the trip that had multi, I mean, he'd been down the river 14 times. And so this guy was, had just had a wealth of knowledge and, you know, he would point things out to us and forward paddle and hit this wave train or look at that rock on the side of the wall, use that as your identifier and rock. And we would listen to him. It's an identifying rock. Just like a, a lot of times on the side of the Canyon wall, it'll just be a rock there and, and you want your, the stern of your boat, pushing towards that to avoid a big hole or wave or some nasty obstacle that will cause havoc on your day for sure. Oh, wow. So with this like 21 days, so let me understand, it's broken up into sections, right? So do you talk, it sounds like you talk about each section before you attempt it. Is that how it works? Absolutely. So before we push off every single day, we'd have a group meeting. We'd say, okay, this is we are at mile 100 today. We are going to raft down to mile 123. These are the rapids that we're going through. Crystal Rapid will be our fourth rapid of the day. It's a big one, and we're going to pull over and scout that rapid and talk about it oh. and even get a more detailed plan for that specific rapid. Oh, it's for like like on-the-day scouting, right? So there could be something. Exactly. So when you, when you do scouting, what do you sort of kind of come up from from a side or do you stop before it or how does that scouting process work yeah i mean typically we'll pull over about 100 yards to 200 yards upstream of the big rapid or obstacle yeah pull over tie all the boats just hike down to the obstacle and we can dissect it and say like you don't want to go there you don't want to go there that's the way you want to go and we would follow each other so the lead boater would kind of be the first one through then we have on this particular ship, we had five boats. So we would have the lead boater and then we'd have three boats in the middle. And then we have what's called a sweep boat, mm -hmm. which is the last boat. Mm -hmm. And that person would sweep and clean up any of the wreckage. And you know, typically your lead boater and your sweep boater are the, the most experienced folks on the, on the trip. Did you say clean up the wreckage? <laughs> yeah. People yeah. Bail and stuff there. They just go in and try to pick them up at the end. Yeah, you know, it's commonly known as carnage, you know, just flip boats or whatnot. Luckily, we on this one particular trip, I was second boat in. I was, this was on mile 27 in Marble Canyon of the Grand Canyon, and I got ejected out of my boat and I took a swim. Yeah. And the boat right behind me came in, swooped me up, and helped me out. So that's just how it works. Nice. That's cool. Okay. So. I was just going to ask about what happens when disaster strikes, but I guess that's how you deal with it. Is there any other, <laughs> well, is there any other considerations they take? I mean, do they train you before you go or do you need a certain threshold of training to go on, on this thing? Like, do they give you a manual? What, what other precautions are taken? Yeah. So, I mean, it's all about experience, just, just like skiing, which might be in a, a sport that other folks could relate to. You're not going down double black diamonds until you're, comfortable on the beginner and the intermediate hills and it's pretty apparent i mean just like beginner skiers not going to just go up the hill and look down a double black diamond and go i mean same things on the river you just don't day one you just don't go down the grand canyon and there's lots of groups and communities just like every other type of sport that helps helps you out nice. but there, there's certainly i mean you can take classes and different stuff like that but as far as like a license to obtain a permit to go down the Grand Canyon, there isn't such a thing. You actually, you have to sign a contract that says that you have the expertise to do it, but no one's checking my resume at the same time. That's cool. So yeah, it sounds 
like throughout the trip, you had a ton of communication ongoing. Everyone seems, because there is a real apparent danger that you guys are working as a team, everyone's very engaged in the process. And yeah, I think there's a lot to to learn there, right? Every step of the way, you're just trying to be a better team, right? A, a group, right? So that's very exciting. So sort of pull it back towards the business side. Obviously, this one experienced person was sort of the leader and, and sort of mentoring everyone through this sort of 21-day journey. Who was, who's been your mentors over the years? The sales center or in, uh, in business? Yeah, I love that question. So, I mean, early on in my career, I had a, the CEO of my company, Tim O'Crowley, for Construction Information Network was a big mentor for me. For whatever reason, he really clinged to me and we liked each other and we had a, a great personal relationship. But he was a very successful businessman and really helped me in my beginning years of entrepreneurialism and kind of taking me through that. Certainly, Peter Rosen, our CEO, has been a major mentor to me throughout our career. Me and Peter met right after Hurricane Katrina hit. And so I want to say it's been 13 years where he's been helping me. And it's just been an uh, amazing relationship there. I do, as far as personal mentors that I really look towards, I do follow macro mentors, if you would, the Sharks on Shark Tank, the Mark Cubans, the Kevin O'Leary, the Richard Branson. I follow those guys on social media and LinkedIn, and I read their blogs. And I love talking with those guys because they've hit grand slams, and I, I just can't wait for the time when we're going to be at a level, you know, certainly they're, they're crazy high levels. But you know when we get to that level and everything's firing on all cylinders and stuff like that. So it's really, really interesting to watch those guys on a macro business level on what they're doing with their organizations and, and then try to, try to take some of those things that they're talking about and bring it down to a scalable sale for our size business as well. Absolutely. Now I'm just going to double back to the mentors that you mentioned, your first mentor. What particularly can you remember learning from, from him? Just simple things. I mean, a funny story. One day I went into his office and this is a, he's a very senior business guy, very well known in the Denver business community. And so I was all about wanting to impress this guy in my <laughs> earlier career. And he calls me down to his office and he says, Matt, come on to my office. And I go down there and sit across from him in his desk and what can I help you with, Tim? And he's like, where's your pen? Where's your paper? He said, get out of here. Don't ever come to my office without a pen and paper again. <laughs> and so I run, I ran back to my office and, and got a pen and paper. But even to this day now, I, I'll never, I always have that small little piece of paper and pen in my pocket to take that stuff down. So just simple stuff to that, to staying organized, but then also how to keep people engaged and having fun and, and moving all in the same direction is is really what Tim helped me out with. Nice. So to clarify your point, it's basically pen and paper to, to basically just collect the information was what he was saying. And not forget it. <laughs> and yeah. not forget it. You know? <laughs> Back to basics. Awesome. Now, how about Peter? What insights have you sort of drawn from him? Obviously, so I'm speaking of the choir, but Peter has a very, very interesting way of looking at things. And a scientific, a very high level of intellect of looking at things. And so how he approaches things, it seems much more fluid than a lot of other people. There is no one right answer. And there's there's many ways to make it to one place. And I think that's what Peter's 
kind of taught me the most is really taking a scientific approach at looking at things and realizing we go down this one road and it doesn't work out. It doesn't mean that the business isn't successful. We just have to redefine some things and refocus in some areas and try a different approach. And that's been just eye-opening on, on how Peter does that, whether it's link cards or locomotives or industrial coatings. He's been able to do this time and time again and in many, many different industries. And, and I just love that approach. Yeah, it's almost like he can look at a problem and he can visualize the whole thing all the way towards a finished solution just in one shot. Absolutely. Yeah, like I said, from from lint cards to writing books to coatings, it's just been amazing to watch his approach on all of these different things and how he moves forward. It's, it's been great. Yeah, perfect. Is there any great books that you read that you can recommend? So anyone that's listened to this podcast and has any interest in the Grand Canyon and that trip that I took, I recently read this book called The Emerald Mile. And it's an awesome book about the Grand Canyon. In the mid-80s, there was a major, major heavy snowfall in the Rockies. Mm -hmm. And basically, Lake Powell started to fill up so much that the water was spilling over the dam. So the Bureau of Reclamation and, and, and those guys, they literally put plywood on the top of Glen Canyon Dam to make water not spill over it. And so because of that, they had to open up uh, emergency release, relief valves that were damaged in the dam itself. And so the CFS went from like, and these numbers could be wrong, but from 16,000 CFS to 100,000 CFS overnight. And so the, the premise of the book is all about these legendary river guides that wanted to break the world record in the fastest descent down the Grand Canyon. And because of the regulated flows that the canyon has now, they it's impossible to break the record mm-hmm. because the flows are basically dictated. Now, this event happened and they didn't have a permit. So they, the whole story is about how these guides pirated the, the canyon and but also the book goes into great detail about the dam the construction of the dam and, and the canyon itself but to give you an idea these guys did the trip that we did in 21 days they did in 24 hours and <laughs> wow. so it's just yeah i mean they were hauling down this river hitting some of the rapids that we hit at 50 times higher size in the middle of the night so wow. take your pen and paper out, write down Emerald Mile. It's a great book. You'll get a kick out of it. And it's a real great education in regards to rafting, but also the canyon and the Glen Canyon Dam. That's awesome. Now, I know you're big on sustainability. What sort of sustainability things that are out there that are important to you that uh, we should know about? You're big in the waters. As far as, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in our business, Tats, we uncover a lot of things in regards to sustainability. And, and water's a big part of our business, but a big part of, you know, just being a human being. I mean, we're, our bodies are, what, something like 95% water or something crazy. But anyways, some of the projects that we've seen, uh, we were looking at this one project in California that took water from Los Angeles down to 
San Diego. And we actually see like they measured the water going in, they measured the water coming out and we're seeing 50% reduction. And it's not alarming to many of the people in the water world, which I, I find crazy. A lot of the irrigation ditch stuff that we've been doing out in Western Colorado. I mean, this water is just absolutely precious. And people talk a, a big game in regards to protecting water sources, but the flagrant disrespect I would put it to water and, and how lackadaisical people are in regards to the infrastructure and how important this infrastructure has been alarming to me. And I, I think we know it's going to be an issue that continues to grow. We can't live without it. And unfortunately, once the cost and the true dollar value of water gets to a certain point, that's going to force the respect in regards to conservation, in my opinion, and sustainability. But it's something that I really watch and follow and I guess to some degree bothers me a little bit. Oh, absolutely. It's good. Okay. So thank you so much. That's a very important thing. We we do talk about that point. So I've asked a bunch of questions. Is there anything that I should have asked you but didn't? No, quite frankly, I think it was it was a good interview and lots of good questions. And I don't know. I, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. Thank you, Matt. And so that's it for today. And I want to thank you for listening to Specified. And I want to also thank the listeners who are working hard each day to to change the world, to make it a better place. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along. Send me a note, drop you a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions, and I'll talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.